This week, fusion energy comes a little bit closer. Right now, this, while a modest step, is further than anyone has gone before. And could research into the colours of ancient animals tell us about their metabolism? This research is really broadening beyond, you know, pure coloration and allowing us to look at things that, that maybe we thought we would never be able to, to infer. Plus, forget electronics, we've got atomtronics. This is the Nature Podcast for February the 13th, 2014. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. In Greek and Roman mythology, there is a god, some call him Apollo, some Helios, who drives the sun across the sky each day. Modern-day scientists down here on the Earth would love to be able to harness such power. They want to copy the way our sun and other stars make energy, through nuclear fusion. Fusion efforts on Earth involve squeezing together two flavours of hydrogen atom under intense pressure and heat. When they join up, they release a lot of energy. But nobody has managed it yet. This week, though, a team at the National Ignition Facility in California announced a step forward. They've been using lasers to keep their fusion fuel pressurised and stable so it doesn't tear apart before they get the reaction underway. Researcher Omar Hurricane talked me through the result. The idea of using fusion, of course, was something kind of born at the beginning of the, uh, the nuclear age, uh, kind of shortly after the atomic bomb was developed, uh, mostly in the 1950s. Of course, uh, even before that, before thinking about it in terms of energy, people recognized uh, that fusion was the process that powered uh, the stars. So uh, the idea of kind of harnessing the same sort of reactions here on Earth goes way back. To do that, though, uh, requires really high pressures. So just extraordinary conditions are required to get fusion to happen, and it's, it's been many decades of work to try to push these ideas further and figure out what, what it was really going to take to achieve this state. And the, the state you're talking about eventually is ignition. That's basically where it takes off. So imagine putting a log of wood in your fireplace, and, uh, of course, you don't try to set the entire log on fire at the same time. So what instead what you do is you strike a match and you try to light one end of the, the log. And, you know, eventually uh, that edge of the log will catch and you've liberated all that chemical energy stored in the log just for the cost of striking that match. Uh, so that's a, that's a pretty good analogy to what we're trying to do. Of course, we're not liberating chemical energy. We're instead liberating this nuclear fusion energy that was stored in, in these atoms by Mother Nature eons ago. So when we burn up the fuel, I mean, that's basically we've ignited it and we've liberated all this energy. We're not at that point yet. We are kind of at the point where we're starting to see the, the, the match held at the edge of the piece of wood starting to catch. And that's more or less what we've achieved and reported on in this nature paper. For the first time here in this paper, you've actually got more energy from lighting the match than you put into making, I suppose, the match. That's exactly right. So we, we took our match and we got a little bit of the, the wood to, to light for a moment and it gave back more energy than we had in that match. But again, it still hasn't warmed the room up because we haven't. it hasn't taken off on us yet. And in terms of the method that you've used... What more is it going to take? Is it just a simple question? A simple question. <laughs> a very uh, challenging question, um, but a simple theory of applying more pressure, more heat, confining it closer, upping the ante. 
Yeah, so the, the thing is it's all a matter of trade-offs. Uh, because we need to get the pressures up, you know, Mother Nature doesn't like putting a lot of energy in a small volume. She wants to wiggle that energy out. And uh, in kind of a, we call that instability, uh, you know, is what we, uh, the term that we generally use. And we'd like it to be perfectly round uh, when we do these implosions. And by having it round, we make the most efficient use of the energy we've put in. Uh, but because the pressures are so enormous, any little imperfection uh, will tend to distort our implosion now from being round, and it will tend to want to tear itself apart. So what we've done here is actually we've made a trade-off. We felt that by changing some of the ways we're using the laser, we could alleviate some of the instabilities that were tearing apart the previous attempts. But we make a sacrifice when we do that. So the old technique can compress more, but it was tearing itself apart. We can compress less, but we were able to hold it together. Uh, what we're looking for now is kind of an optimum somewhere in between. Now, of course, Mother Nature has a lot to do with this, but we have to decide to fund these projects. The US government, I suppose, puts a lot of money into the National Ignition Facility where you did these experiments. And it has its future has been threatened in the past because fusion's kind of been a long time coming. I mean, how do you think this result might influence the future of the Institute? Well, I'm... I'm hoping it helps. Uh, it's a little dangerous for me to speak on budgetary issues, uh, but uh, this is real progress, and no one has gotten this far before, and a lot of smart people have been working on this, and a lot of resources have been put into not just our facility, but other facilities all over the world. And, and right now, this, while a modest step, is further than anyone has gone before. That was Omar Hurricane on the line from the Lawrence Livermore National Lab in California. Still to come, asteroid architecture in the research highlights, and we discuss the first Americans in the news chat. But first, a rainbow of colour. Green iguanas, red pandas, blackbirds and blue-footed boobies. The diversity of colours in the natural world is astonishing. It's relatively easy to study colour in living animals, but to get an idea of how it may have evolved, we need to look at extinct animals. That means fossils, and that's most certainly a horse of a different colour. Matt Shorkey from the University of Akron in Ohio and his team have been shedding some light on the evolution of colour, and Noah Baker caught up with him, first asking why animals would want to colour themselves. Colour is used in a whole variety of contexts. I guess the two ends of the spectrum are you can be coloured to try and avoid being seen and then you can be coloured to make yourself seen. If you're a little mammal and you're trying to avoid hawks, you want to make yourself as inconspicuous as possible so you colour yourself very dully so you can blend in with your surroundings and avoid detection. Um, on the other end, if you're perhaps a male bird, you know, trying to attract a mate, then you'll want to um, make yourself as, as colorful and bright and, and you want to stand out as much as possible from the environment. So those are the two broad categories of why, why animals would want to be colored, concealment and advertisement. Quite a diverse sort of color range we have across the animal kingdom. Has, has it always been like that? That's what we're, we're trying to find out now. You know, it does seem from our earlier work that even pretty early feathered dinosaurs were more colorful than you might expect. Color vision has been around, so so animals have been able to see in color for you know quite a long time. With that, you know, it makes you think that that colors have been important um, for animals for a really long time. 
Now, every fossil I've ever seen has been pretty black and white. How do you determine the, the colours of these fossils? So there are these little packets of pigment called melanosomes. So they have a, a pigment called melanin in them. We have thousands of these things uh, in our hair, and, and birds have hundreds of thousands of them in their feathers. When you look at a fossil and you, you take it and you stick it under a, a very powerful microscope, you can see these things. So the, it actually turns out that they're preserved in the fossils. The melanosomes are um, you know, millions of years old, but you can still see the, the, the structure of them is, is still intact. So you've got these little melanosomes, these little bags of pigment. What about looking at them can tell you about what colour they were? It actually turns out that there's a uh, relationship, at least in birds, um, uh, between the shape of the melanosomes and the colour they produce. For example, you have a melanosome that's shaped like uh, you know, a very, very small grain of rice. Okay, um, Those melanosomes typically are, are associated with black colours. And then if you um, take a melanosome that has a a shape like a meatball, like a little sphere, uh, those typically produce brown colors. And we've built a database, uh, you know, comparing shape to color in modern birds, and we can take the, the shape data from the fossil, put it into our, our database on modern birds, and use that to, um, to predict a color for the fossil. And you've looked back at various organisms, quite a few actually, and um, you've noticed there seems to be a, a quite a defined moment where color seems to get a bit more exciting in the natural world. We've been deducing the color of feathers of, of dinosaurs and, and other birds. Um, we became curious about, can we do the same thing with other animals? So we started sampling other organisms like uh, lizards and snakes and turtles as well as mammals. And um, what we found was that there's actually no relationship between uh, shape and color in these other organisms. So if you look at a lizard skin, for example, uh, you look at a black lizard skin, um, the melanosomes in there are actually the exact same shape as they are in a brown lizard skin. The diversity of melanosome shapes is not present in reptiles. But it turns out that when you look at mammal hairs, though, mammal hairs actually have that same relationship between shape and color uh, that feathers do. And when you look back uh, in the fossil record, when you look at fossil reptiles, fossil lizards, the melanosome shapes are exactly the same as they are in modern lizards. So that tells us that there was a, a shift in the, the diversity of these melanosome shapes somewhere along the lineage leaning to birds and then another one on the lineage leaning to mammals. If I think about reptiles, the first thing that pops into my head is chameleons and king snakes. These are pretty colourful reptiles. Why are they so colourful if they don't have this diversity of melanosome shape? Uh, it's a really great question. I think it really brings home the point that, that colour is really important to animals. Uh, things like chameleons and, and these colourful lizards and so forth have actually found different ways to colour themselves. So they actually have different pigment types. So they've actually evolved, you know, convergently evolved bright colours uh, through entirely different mechanisms. Is there something about feathers and about fur that leads to being able to have this diversity of shape? We went through a bunch of different ideas, you know, explaining why feathers and fur in particular would have this diversity. And that's, you know, it certainly could be that you have to have something growing out of a follicle, maybe to have very diverse melanosome shapes. But what we really kind of zeroed in on was that mammals and birds, they're, they're quite different. But one thing they have in common is, you know, they have high metabolic rates. And so that led us to think that maybe there's a connection between metabolism and melanosome diversity. Melanin coloration is linked to um, a lot of other uh, physiological factors like metabolic rate in animals. And uh, so what we're finding is that we can use uh, things like trace 
findings of melanosomes or fossilized melanosomes to infer not only changes in coloration, but also changes in metabolism. Uh, so we can um, potentially use, um, you know, look at the evolution of, of melanosomes, how they change through time, and use that to potentially infer um, metabolic changes in, in animals. So this, this research is really broadening beyond, you know, pure coloration and allowing us to look at things that, that maybe we thought we would never be able to, to infer. That was Matt Shawkey talking to Noah Baker. And Noah's sticking around because now it's time for the research highlights. Hoping to colonise space in the future? Well, good luck building your base, because space rocks don't like to be stuck together. Engineers currently use electron beams to weld materials like steel in space. But to live there, they'll need to use native materials, like moon rock or asteroids, which are rich in minerals and metals. A US-based team got hold of some iron-rich meteorite to do a test build. They used an electron beam under a vacuum to weld a fragment together. As it cooled, the phosphorus in the meteorite caused cracks to appear, and the joint was weak. Find that paper in the journal Science and Technology of Welding and Joining. A glowing probe could pinpoint infections by the life-threatening bacterium Staphylococcus aureus. Current imaging techniques can't detect the bacterium in the body. Instead, doctors must take a tissue biopsy, which can take days to analyse. Now, a US team have created a probe that fluoresces when it meets an enzyme made by S. aureus. The enzyme cuts the probe and that sets off a glow. The researchers tested the probe in a mouse with an S. aureus infection in its muscles. Sure enough, they saw a telltale glow. The authors expect to see the probe used in clinics in the coming years. Read more in Nature Medicine. electronics that fill our everyday lives, electrons zip around circuits, creating the current that powers devices. But now some physicists are ditching electrons and creating circuits that use a current of atoms instead. In this field, dubbed atomtronics, atoms are supercooled to near absolute zero. At this temperature, they form a collective quantum state of matter, known as a Bose-Einstein condensate, or BEC. They're also a superfluid, meaning they flow without resistance. These properties could make for an exciting range of future atomtronic devices. But can atomtronics ever be as reliable as electronics? In an important step, physicists have now succeeded in detecting a fundamental property of electronic circuits in atomtronic ones. It's called hysteresis, and it makes memory devices more robust. It could allow atomtronic circuits to be used as sensitive rotation sensors. Gretchen Campbell, a physicist at the University of Maryland, spoke to reporter Lizzie Gibney about her team's work. In an electronic system, your current is carried by charged electrons within your, say, your wire. Now, the way that current flows is you have these uh, charged electrons, and they sort of flow and bump into each other. And one of the disadvantages of electronics right now is this creates heating or resistance in the system, and that can lead to a loss of the, the power so we're actually moving on now to a, a new system, atomtronics, where instead of having charged electrons, we actually have neutral atoms. And these atoms actually constitute our current now. And so this circuit that you've created, what does it look like? Talk me through that. It's a gas of ultra-cold atoms. In our experiment, we use sodium atoms. And they're in a, a state called a, a Bose-Einstein condensate. 
Now, one of the properties of the state is it actually acts as a superfluid. So this means that actually if, when I create a current in the system, that current can actually flow without any resistance. So there's no heating like you would associate with normal current in, a, in an electronic system. Now, our atoms are actually shaped in a ring, and the size of the ring is about 100 microns, which is roughly the size of a, a human hair. And what have people been able to achieve so far with circuits like this using atoms? So the very first step was to show that we could actually create a, a ring-shaped gas, um, since in order to have a circuit, you want to have something which is shaped like a ring. Then we've also showed that we can actually create these persistent currents. So we can create a, a current that, as I said, flows without resistance, which means that that current flows for as long as we have the BEC. Now, for us, that turns out to be about a minute, since that's as long as we can hold on to this BEC. We then showed that we can create this, this current in these very controlled, sort of discrete units. And what we've done in our, our recent paper has shown that we can both turn on that current and turn off that current in a controlled way, and we've shown that the behaviour of it exhibits hysteresis. What exactly is hysteresis, and where might, we see, where might we see that normally in an electronic circuit? So hysteresis is actually used a lot in electronics. So a, a common thing that it's used for is actually in magnetic hard drive memory. Now, when your computer stores data, it stores it in zeros and one, and it turns out that zero and one is actually a, a magnetization of a, a bit in your computer. Now, if you're storing information in some state, you want to make sure that you're not going to you know, switch from a zero to one if there's just some slight fluctuations in, in the magnetic field in your system. So because of that, these systems take advantage of hysteresis, whereas the field you need to switch from a zero to one is different than the field you need to switch from a one to zero. So it makes your system more robust to you know, external perturbations in the system so that it doesn't flip states except when you really want it to. Okay, so we have hysteresis in electronic circuits. How do we see that then in our circuit of atoms? Well, what we've been doing so far is we've been showing that we can spin up the rotation rate, the current, in our atom ring in a very controlled way. Now, we actually do that using a laser beam. As we start to rotate that laser beam around our ring, the BC doesn't actually continuously speed up. Instead, it actually jumps into motion at a, a critical rotation rate. And the reason we get hysteresis is because the jump happens when you're speeding it up at a different point to when you're slowing it down. Exactly. Great. So what might we be able to use this for in the future? Our next step is to try to create a, a more advanced rotation sensor that can actually give you a, a more precise rotation sensor. We're also starting to explore more complicated geometries where you have a, a more complicated shape and thinking about different kinds of uh, circuit elements we could add to our system. And what's a rotation sensor useful for? Is that basically a, a gyroscope? Exactly. You know, nowadays we use GPS often for navigation, but one can imagine situations where maybe you're not able to get a GPS signal, or so you can imagine using it, say, on a ship or in different kinds of, of navigation applications. And I guess this would be ultra-sensitive as well. Right now we're still not sure how accurate it will be as a rotation sensor. The size of our ring, as I said, it's only about 100 microns, so it turns out that limits its accuracy as a rotation sensor, but it turns out that there's some applications, maybe you're looking for changes over a small length scale, or there's some fundamental physics application where our sensor could be very useful. That was Gretchen Campbell talking to Lizzie Gibney. News time now and joining me in the studio is nature reporter Ewan Calloway. Ewan, the story you've brought with us today is about the genome of a Native American. Yeah, I'm here with another ancient genome. This one is from an early Native American, as you say, 
who is a, a representative of what's called the Clovis culture. The Clovis culture is this like enigmatic population of humans that lived in, in America between about 13,000 years ago, 12,600 years ago. And they left all these kind of beautiful fluted uh, you know, stone projectile points and, and hand axes, but very few bones. In fact, there's just one, one skeleton that's been associated with Clovis culture, and it's from this ranch in Montana. And the, the latest is that uh, researchers at the University of Copenhagen and elsewhere have sequenced an entire genome from the skeleton, which belongs to a one- to two-year-old boy. We've known about Clovis people since the beginning of the 20th century, and this genome connects them to, to present-day Native Americans, and not just those in Montana, all over North and South America. And so what that's telling us is that very early on, you know, maybe 15,000 years ago or so, people, humans moved across the Bering Land Bridge from Asia and basically started to populate America, giving rise to Clovis culture, this boy, and, you know, to populations that continue today. So aside from telling us about the movements of these populations, there's also some underlying ethics issues surrounding this genome. Yeah, and that, that's what I've really chosen to focus on in my story uh, in Nature's News section this week. There have been some episodes in, in the past where researchers have studied the skeletons of these very old Native American uh, remains, and it's created uh, some tensions between Native American communities and scientists. There's one very famous lawsuit from the late 90s over a fossil or a skeleton called Kennewick Man. And the researchers who obtained this, this boy's genome kind of wanted to really avoid a, a similar episode. And so before they published this research, last year, in fact, they took a road trip around Montana meeting with uh, representatives of, of various tribes there descended from, from this boy indirectly. And they, they basically tried to reach some sort of consensus, you know, on, on whether to proceed with this research. And I think they got a lot of, you know, a lot of diverse views. People weren't fatally opposed to the re- research, but for some Native American groups and tribes, it's of great cultural interest to them to have the remains of their ancestors buried and buried properly. So the overwhelming consensus was is that they wanted these boys' remains reburied. And what are the current government regulations on that? We know that these people want these remains reburied. What about federal law? Right. So this earlier episode I described uh, involving Kennewick Man, that highlighted this law in America that says that if remains are found on federal lands, and there's a a Native American tribe that can claim some sort of cultural affinity to these remains, you have to give them back to them so they can can rebury them. The difference here is that these remains uh, were not only found on a, a private site, so this law didn't apply, but they're so old that you can raise questions about whether there's cultural continuity between present day Native American tribes and this individual. There's obviously genetic continuity, but this individual is, you know, genetically re- related to Native American tribes all over North and South America, you know, all the way down, you know, to Peruvian Andes up through Alaska. So there were no legal issues created here, but it kind of creates this question of, you know, if I want to get permission to, to analyze these remains, whom do I ask? The remains of this young boy were found on the Anzic Ranch. What do the Anzics have to say? The remains were found in the 1960s on the ranch of this family owned by Helen and, and Melvin Anzic. And 
they kind of, you know, they hosted archaeologists kind of coming to the site to study it. But uh, this latest chapter involves uh, their daughter, Sarah Anzik, who herself, she's a molecular biologist and a human geneticist. And when her family kind of got the remains back um, after archaeologists had been studying them, she got the idea, you know, this was in the 1990s when people were starting to do a lot of ancient DNA work, that maybe she could study the DNA. And she reached out to some Native American groups uh, in the area and kind of failed to reach a consensus over whether to proceed with this research. And she kind of put it aside. But then about a decade later, she got a call from these archaeologists and geneticists asking about you know, the remains and whether she'd be interested in now sequencing the genome. And she said, yeah, yeah, you know, I want to do it, but I want to be involved. So she kind of traveled to this ancient DNA laboratory in Copenhagen, you know, did some of the sequencing herself and did some of the analysis herself. And she's an author on the paper. So the remains are now with back with the Anzik family. Presently, the remains are in the possession of the Anzik family. But out of this consultation with these various tribes in, in Montana, they came to the consensus, I think, that these bones should re, re, be reburied. And so when the Montana ground thaws later this spring, uh, there are plans to put this boy's remains back in the grounds. Thanks, Ewan. Remember, you can read that story at nature.com slash news. Come and talk to us on Twitter at Nature Podcast or drop us a line at podcast at nature.com if we can help with anything. That's all from us this week. Next week, I'll be reporting from the meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in Chicago. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith.